welcoming you to Be In The Know. Now, typically we bring you leading Premier League journalists who are allowed behind closed doors, but this has been a quite extraordinary and a terribly sad week. We have lost Diego Maradona and we are with some very special guests to talk both about the man, the legend and the key moments. We are going to take you back in time so we can really get a behind the scenes experience of that remarkable night at the Azteca Stadium with Paddy Barkley, who is the envy of the world, Paddy, because you were there. But where were you when you heard the news that Maradona had passed and what was your instant reaction? Well, my instant reaction was sadness um, mixed with joy when shortly after, because I heard on Twitter, mixed with joy because shortly afterwards, uh, and sometimes Twitter can be a good thing, um, because uh, shortly afterwards a, a film was shown of, uh, of, of a double amputee little boy uh, playing football with Diego Maradona very recently, obviously, and of Maradona hugging the boy after he'd scored a goal, obviously with his, with his hand or his body. Um, from an assist by Diego. And, uh, you know, that was just a very quick reminder of, of the man he was, which was, although I never met him, by all accounts, uh, a very sweet man. A god of the people, as he's been referred to this week. We are going to fly in the face of technology this week because last week, Martin Lipton, who lives less than half a mile away from me, could barely be heard over his poor broadband. Well done, Virgin. So we're going to fly all the way out to Rio and defy technology. I am delighted and so grateful to Tim Vickery, who's basically the South American correspondent for the whole of the English-speaking world and has had a tumultuous week. Tim, where were you when you heard and have you even had a chance to take it in? I was just about to record a podcast when I saw the news that he'd been taken ill and it didn't look good. It was a day that we knew was going to come at some point and it nearly came back in 2004. So in some way you'd, pre you'd prepared. I'd actually written and been asked to write an obituary type piece for him earlier, earlier this month. Um, but you know what it's going to mean professionally. It's going to mean, come on, let's do some work. Let's roll your sleeves up and try and do him justice, uh, which is a, it's a big theme. It's a big story. So uh, that's what my life has, uh, has, has been like ever since. And, and, and how wonderful it is to be able to have the privilege of trying to explain aspects of Maradona to an English-speaking audience who perhaps don't understand all of the nuances. And I'm going to cross now to Jerry, Jeremy Wilson, who would have had what would have been absolutely the story of the week, because we talk about Diego Maradona and so much of that story is caught up with player welfare. And you have been spearheading a campaign with The Telegraph since 2016 on the links between football and dementia. And finally, you got the moment to report that Gordon Taylor has announced, sent out a letter saying he will end his 40-year tenure as chief executive of the Professional Footballers Association. Um, an extraordinary day for you, but let's look first to that moment when Gordon Taylor sent the letter to outline that he would be finally leaving. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was, it was coming that, that Gordon Taylor would, would leave. 
soon but the, the the big point was that he actually put a time scale on it and he's going to leave by the end of the year and I think the for, for the people who to, to link it to the I don't think it's solely about the dementia campaign that he's leaving but I think that was one of the issues where he, he took a huge amount of criticism for for the for the slow reaction for, from the PFA over it and how much funds they've allocated towards care and everything like that towards former players what it does mean is it's just a chance for a new start for the PFA um, on a range of issues but particularly this one and I think it, the new the new person who comes in next season I think they'd be they'd be very sensible to really tackle this make this a, a big priority for them so let's look at the telegraph you were going to lead with this story it was an absolute breakthrough in your campaign and then a matter of hours later we lose Diego Maradona yeah I mean that's what happens sometimes with 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 newspapers I suppose you, that, that things do do change quickly and um certainly we were planning to do the first three pages around you know some analysis about Gordon Taylor's tenure um a piece about the dementia aspect of it and then a piece just about the fact that he was going, how the PF, because the recommendations from the independent review were also published um, uh, on the day. So it was also a piece about that and how the PFA may change going forward. So we went from three, four pieces um, around the PFA to, to we did the first seven pages about um, about Maradona. And then, as I say, that, yeah, the PFA story went from being three or four stories into one. That's what can happen sometimes with newspapers. Tim. For so many people, Diego Maradona was defined by that quarterfinal against England, but I found it quite extraordinary to hear that there's likely to be a national holiday dedicated to Maradona because he was such a figure in Argentina, but it could be the day he died, it could be his birthday, but for Argentina, it could as likely be the day of that quarterfinal. Does it resonate really as strongly for Argentina as it does for England? It does. It does. Um, remember that it's not as important as the semi-final in football terms against Belgium when he's even better. But it's because it was against England and it's because he scored those two goals in the way that he scored them. It's the moment that defines, defines a life. Now, the, uh, the press uh, at the time made a great deal of the fact that th this was four years after the war between our two countries in, this, in the South Atlantic. It goes so much deeper than that from an Argentine point of view. You've got to remember that uh, Argentina was an unofficial part of the British Empire. Um, so Argentina finds itself on the wrong end of this neo-colonial neo relationship. And it's the reason that football arrives in Argentina, brought by the British. And the, the, the history and the importance of South American football can be explained in three stages. And so many of these stages have to do with the life of, of Maradona. It's introduced by the British, full of first world prestige. It's reinterpreted. It moves down the social scale very quickly as South America is urbanizing rapidly from the elite down to the poorer classes. And football is such a simple sport, no barriers to entry. And as it moves down, it's reinterpreted by the locals into a more balletic, graceful game, ideal for those of a low center of gravity, like Diego Maradona. And that reinterpretation leads to international triumphs and international recognition for a part of the world that's starved of, of, of these things. So England is, there's a kind of love-hate relationship. And here, Maradona, poor kid, wrong side of the tracks. And with that first goal, he's living out a revenge fantasy, right? The English have the formal power, but we can run rings around them. We're smarter than them. 
put one in with his hand and get away with it. So the first goal is saying we're smarter than them. And the second goal is simply saying we're better than them. You couldn't have scripted this. It, th th this comes out of a deep-lying Argentine fantasy. Uh, and it is scoring those two goals against that opponent is the day that he, with disastrous consequences in, in, in many respects, is elevated to the level of, of, of a god. That's why he took on such an incredible importance. And that's why the Argentine people were just so determined to see him lie in state. And it's such a shame, I think, that the local tradition here, for climatic reasons, is that the funeral happened so close after, after the event of the death. Um, I think in, in, even for an ordinary person, for a common person, it's not mm. healthy because uh, at the time of the funeral, you haven't been able to process everything. You still haven't gone through all of those emotions. But that's certainly true in the case of, of Maradona. It's such a shame that he wasn't able to lie in state. So people from all over Argentina, it's a giant country, would have had the chance to come and, 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 and pay their last respects because what they're celebrating is themselves. They're celebrating their own capacity. He's one of themselves. He's one of them who, given the opportunity, showed what he was able to do on the global stage through the, through the mechanism of, uh, of football. Football, in some ways, destroyed him. I mean, he, he paid a terrible price for his ability on the football field. Uh, I don't ever, ever recall a player being as cheated against as Maradona. The physical punishment that he took was inhumane. Well said. He well is the said. bravest player I have ever seen. The, 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 the scope of his career from the mid-70s to the mid-90s, the average distance covered by top-level players doubled during that time. And that, that's the course of his career. Without any, any corresponding increase in the protection afforded to skillful players, that came basically after the disappointment of the 1990 World Cup. So he was being brutally kicked, elbowed, intimidated every time he took the field. Now, there's a price to be paid for that. And come by by the 1990 World Cup, he's just been he's been pumped full of cortisone mm. in order to fool his body that he's okay to play. Yeah, and and I wonder the extent to which his social drug problems and social drugs have nothing to do with performance enhancement. I wonder the extent to which his social drug problems, on the one hand, come from the fact that now he's reached the level of a, of, of a god, both in Argentina and in in, in Naples all restraints are taken away from him. But also, I wonder how much of this is a need to blot out the physical pain from doing what he's been doing on the football field week in, week out. So football gave him the possibility to express himself to an extraordinary capacity and to become a, a global hero, especially of those on the wrong side of the tracks. But football also in some ways destroyed him. Very briefly, like to amplify that, because your original question about Diego Maradona was the, will, will there be a national mourning in Argentina? I'd, I'd be astonished if there isn't um, quasi-national mourning in, in the south of Italy um, because of the effect that he had on Naples, which is almost as profound as the effect that he, Naples, a, a city that thrived for decades on the back of what Maradona brought to it in terms of pride. Um, this, 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 and, 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 and one final thing about the national holiday. I, I, I'm only half joking when I say I wouldn't have been surprised if Nicola Sturgeon had announced a national holiday in Scotland because um, 
he, you know, he was adored in Scotland. He was so you know where popular. he scored his? You know where he scored his first international? I saw goal. it. I was there. I was there at Hampden Park, and I'll you're, tell you're you. You're just finding more reasons to make us all jealous, aren't you? <laughs> I was there, and and the, the, what I remember most vividly is that there were sixty thousand there. It was, a, a, I think, an end of season friendly at Hampden Park, and this boy came. And he already had a little bit of a reputation because he'd been controversially left out of uh, the 78, I think, World Cup. And um, as soon as he touched the ball, the crowd, the, all 60,000 were electrified. And after half an hour of the match, a booing broke out at Hampden, quite widespread. They were booing Scotland in possession because they didn't want them to have the ball. They wanted the boy to have the ball. They wanted to watch and admire and acclaim this uh, this talent, and oh, I mean, uh, there are many examples of of Glasgow being the the heart and soul of football, particularly the, the world the record crowd for a Champions League final and so on uh, between two teams not from Glasgow and uh, in 1960. But that was a day when I felt really proud that these people preferred football to Scotland. Can I take you to that remarkable day at the Azteca Stadium as well, Paddy, mm. and, and walking the sights, because everyone is so jealous of you. If we could all have been there. Briefly, I would go back to the day before the match in Mexico City. Bobby Robson held England's press conference on the pitch because he, he presumably the TV people had asked him to do that. And he said, well, look, if, if I'm going to do that, I'll do, I'll do the journalists as well. So we went out to the center of circle, but we could hardly keep our feet uh, because the pitch was so treacherous. I mean, bear in mind that, that this is the slalom goal, the, the second goal. If, if it had been scored on a modern, stable, flat, lovely pitch, it would have been a great goal, of course. But this was played, played that goal was scored on an obstacle course. The reason being that for some reason, the, the 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 ground was very very hard. It hadn't been obviously hadn't been watered for a while, and the reason for that became obvious from the upper layer, which was you know you know when you go into a a parquet floor that's got cheap rugs on it and you're slipping all over the place. That was what it was like. The but the cheap rugs in this case were were divots of turf, and so I, I, I remember a cameraman brushed past me as they do. And uh, I nearly fell head over heels because I, I couldn't keep my footing on the on the surface. So anyway, that was that was the day before at the match. What I, what I can remember, and this is my excuse for a confession, which I'm about to make. Um, the, the the press area was right at the back of the Azteca, but the point was that we were a long, long way from the pitch, and that's my excuse for. What happened when <clears throat> the first goal went in, the hand of God goal, I went, and I'll, I'll take out the swear word, I exclaimed, what a header. And it was, and I can remember in front of me was the PA, the agency man, we were journalists, you know, Gold Press Association, PA, the, the agencies who serve all the, all the media. And uh, they are trained, unlike us who are trained to give fancy opinions and flowery phrases, if we can think of them, they are trained to get everything right. And in front of me was the PA man, his name was Tony Smith. He said, I don't think that was a header, you know. 
he turned around to me. I'll never forget it. I, I, you know, not the first person to have contradicted one of my opinions, but he was so quick on it and how he had seen that. And of course, we then rang our offices who confirmed that it, it was being analyzed on, on British television and, and indeed television all over the world. Um, but we hardly had time. The, the one thing that ought to be said about that in the context of the game was that England at that stage were never going to win it. England had hardly crossed the halfway line in the 52nd minute. It was an abject performance because they were scared of Maradona. And uh, of course, that goal made them come out. And uh, to an extent, uh, what, ha what happened was history. The, the, the second goal then happened. And um, I think, I don't think English people you know, being a sort of neutral, being a Scotland supporter, I was able to appreciate the second goal as it went in. English people didn't have the stomach for it. And I can remember going to the press conference afterwards. We went back to the England Hotel, naturally. And of course, the usual suspects, Butch and, 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 and those, you know, you know, the ones with the, with the St. George flag on their forehead were, were saying what I would love to do to Maradona. Uh, and and, I, and I, I remember sitting with Gary Lineker. Like, well, they tried during the game, didn't they? They tried hard enough to do to do oh, the things to him during the, the game. The second goal. I mean, you talk about uh, you, you know the, the the kind of treatment that he got. He was the most treated against player in the history mm -hmm. of football, Tim. I think that was bravest guy. And and I, I remember I was given an, an an exclusive interview with him by a television crew. Uh, from Argentina many years ago. I hope I've still got it. And he he talked about about cheating, and he talked about he said, "Listen, Shilton, if the ball had been two yards over the line, he spoke directly to Shilton on the camera. If the ball was two yards over the line, you know, Roy Carroll style, would you admit it or would you throw the ball straight out? You know, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. You know, football, the culture of football is to try to gain advantage. The only difference between Latins and us is that the Latins admit it. But anyway, he was, he was, he said about the second goal, he said, you know, when I, when I knew I would score was when I could feel Butcher coming in behind me. I could hear him panting and straining to get at me. I knew then that the ball would be a goal because for him to tackle me, he'd have had to tackle me through my leg. He might have broken my leg, but he'd have scored an own goal. The ball would have been propelled in. So even before I put it past Shilton, I knew it was a goal. And the fact that he even thought about his leg being broken, he thought about his leg. But you know, people talk about the butcher of Bilbao, but there were butchers of everywhere trying to break his legs all the time to have a look at it and then have a look at uh, a showreel of Messi's slaloms. Totally different. It's like a difference between the derby being run on the flat and Beecher's Brook. It, it, he, Maradona played in a totally, he played a totally different game. And it was partly because of his martyrdom and that of Marco Van Basten, two great players, careers were in the case of Van Basten, successfully curtailed by ankle injuries, Maradona somehow soldiered on, took his country to the World Cup. People talk about 86. They don't talk so much about 90. He took a rubbish team, a terrible team, to the final of the World Cup. He was a martyr to his 
genius. Can I take you into that press that press box, though, Paddy? Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. I know, sorry, just, yeah. No, but this is great. I'm not going to stop you. Um, we don't want to stop this. Um, I, uh, everyone in that press box is realizing it's a handball. Yeah. And then how quickly is the gear changed to just watching one of the most magnificent goals you'll oh, see? Oh, it was very, very slow, Gary. Because we, 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 if we'd said, uh, if we'd sent back reports saying, yeah, but the second goal sort of made up for it. Uh, our sports desks would have spiked. In those days, it was paper, I think, although I was on a computerized news. The, the sports editors would simply have said, you're, you're not in tune with the public mood, rewrite. But I mean, uh, in terms of actually experiencing it, of, of, of realizing oh. and appreciated he's, appreciating he'd scored that handball in, in that press box in the English media, he would have been oh, yeah. the complete oh, villain it, to some of all. Yes, it was quite it, it was quite quick and and and, and unanimous. Um, you know that was the, that was the story at the time, and it wasn't until uh, as I, I was sort of I, I got sidetracked. But the press conference afterwards, the uh, which was basically the England players already got a couple of beers out and were trying to drown their sorrows really um, in a in a, in a uh, an athlete's way. But it, it it was a very somber gathering, and even the journalists. I mean, even I think Scots felt terribly sorry about it, um, uh, ish. And um, I, I was sitting with Gary Lineker, and I said, you know, thinking this was the right thing to say, terrible piece of cheating that. And he just looked me in the eye. He said, "I wish we'd scored it." And that's typical of Lineker. He always find he found the right words on I think it was BBC television um, to react to Maradona. But one thing he left out was that the kickoff of England-Argentina uh, with Maradona on one side, uh, Lineker on the other, was delayed by 10 seconds. The reason for this is that just before the referee blew his whistle, Maradona walked alone across the centre circle and shook hands with Lineker. Who was the leading goal scorer in the in the World Cup at that time, and had scored those sensational goals against Poland, um, and that was a that was a lovely little look. It might have been mind games. It might have been you know softening up, but it, it was a lovely gesture anyway. And uh, and so the kickoff was was ten seconds late. And that goal, that beautiful goal, when you were watching it live. Mm. And from where you were, mm. did you appreciate right then how special it was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know those goals don't—they're not—they're not ten a penny. And um, uh, I, I think already uh, because of the Scotland match that that Tim drew our, our attention to earlier, and a match at England, he'd already played at Wembley by that time and nearly scored. This is the measure. Of, I always think this is the measure of a great player. People. Remember their misses, as with Pelé, the uh, the one where he dummied the goalkeeper, and the one where he tried to score from the halfway line, both of which didn't produce goals. Similarly, at, at, at Wembley, he went on a slalom and slipped it past. I think it's right. Uh, there's, it there's, there's a, there's a yeah. fascinating thing about about that slalom, one on one with a goalkeeper, similar angle to yeah. six six years later, yeah. and he went for the shot to the far post, and he uh -huh. just rolled it wide. Yes, it rolled. At, yeah. And his brother said, why didn't you slip the dummy? 
why didn't you put him on the on his, on his backside and put the ball in at the near post mm. and you know that thing of the great sportsman how mm. things happen in him for him or her in slow motion mm. for the the sportsman or sportswoman who's being outclassed everything happens yeah. in a blur as yeah. it did to the, the England defence. But while Maradona's bearing down on goal, mm. he's thinking about all these things. He's thinking, mm. he's thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, well, this time I can do what my brother suggested, you know. Yeah. And in the dressing room... It's amazing room how they can... They, they live in a different time zone, don't they? In the yeah. dressing room afterwards, the centre-forward, Valdano, said, mm. yeah, I was making a run. I was trying to make myself available. And Maradona said, yeah, yeah, I saw you. I saw you. Yeah. I thought about giving the pass, but in the end, I decided. And, and Valdano just shook his head and said, you yeah. know, we, we're dealing with something else here. We're yeah. dealing with something which is so much better than anything else that, 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 yeah. that we've got. Those players, they, they have the 360-degree vision. To answer your question, Carrie, yes, we, we're already aware that we were in the presence of greatness. It, in fact, it conditioned Bobby Robson's tactical approach to the match which was un, very uncharacteristically for him, negative. Of course, as soon as the, the Hand of God goal went in, uh, what arguably facilitated the second goal was that Bobby said, well, there's no point in defending now and uh, went for the tactics, which eventually led to England playing 4-2-4 and, and nearly saving the match. Very nearly saving the match by the, by the width of a... Well, by a hair on Gary Lineker's head, which, you know, the, the, the Lineker and the defender, I think it might have been Brown um, or, or Lattica Chair, I can't remember which, but they headed the ball at the same time and it squeezed against the post. And that was how close England came to saving that match. Um, I'm, uh, I'm thank you, Gary, for uh, bringing back so many uh, really happy memories in a, in a sad context. Well, thank you for taking us there. I think we all, I was thinking, I just, there've been so many tributes, but you just, it makes you want to go there and more and more. So thank you for taking us there. Um, Gary Lineker, you say choosing the right words. Um, it gave a beautiful tribute to Maradona. I, of course, went out and, and spent a few days with him and did a documentary around him at a very good time when he was in, in good health. But he talked um, in the studio for BT about his amazing warm-up routine and Ozzy Ardilis um, has been talking about it in the, in the mail my friend um, the legend among many tributes and alludes to that match that you talk about at Scotland all the way back to 1975 just them knowing that what a talent he was he was um, they used to send out a young player to do sort of warm-ups and keepy-ups ahead of the matches and he talks about how as a 14 year old the senior Argentina national players used to come out of the dressing room before their matches to watch him because they couldn't <laughs> believe what they were seeing. As Gary Lineker explained, kicking the ball in the air and it just landing back magnetically on his laces. <laughs> and he's saying, what's even more remarkable is we come and watch him do it. And he'd just be saying, hey, how are you? How, how's your day? Up in the air, comes back, lands on his laces. And they knew from that, he said, and that was the day he, I made him my friend. Ozzy wanted to be his friend. He, yeah. wanted, he wanted Maradona to say, I'm Ozzy Ardiles' friend. It's extraordinary that they all knew he was he was he was the idol of the idols yeah when yeah. the idols got together they idolized maradona but yeah. i think there's an important point to be made here because maradona was capable of any trick you care to mention with a football mm. the ball has never been part of anyone's body more than than maradona it's not just tied to his left foot it's the shoulder the, the whole the, the the ball is like part of his body but 
mm. as a player. He was never a trickster. Never. Mm. He's not doing the crowd-pleasing stuff 60 yards from goal just to get the crowd into raptures doing some tricks. Yeah. No. That ability that he had was always at the service of the collective. Always. Um, the perfect and, example. And, and that, that's, that's why the players who played with him have an unconditional love for him. Yeah. And you can find people who play, played with Pelé who have no time for him whatsoever, <laughs> despite recognising his extraordinary greatness as a player. Mm. Maradona was a giver. Mm. He just wanted the team to win. The, the greatest example, if, if, sorry, Tim, if I'm, the greatest example of that was the 1986 World Cup final. Uh, Germany, and this is how, how Maradona dominated the world of football at that time. Germany's approach to the game was to second their best player, Lothar Mateus, to man-mark Maradona, to go in with him at half-time and have a pee with him, if necessary. It was man-marking of the most blatant kind. And this was Germany's best player who was, who was detailed to do this. And what's more, Mateus being Mateus, he did it very well. He restricted Maradona, as far as I can remember, to, well, this is poetic license, three touches, each of which brought a goal as Germany won 3-2. He was fouled for the free kick that led to the first uh, uh, Argentine goal, and he provide, cru provided crucial passes, not least uh, for one for Valdano, and not least for, uh, was it Buruchaga? He, he put Buruchaga through for the final goal. So, he, 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 you know, he could win the, a, a game even when he was marked out of it. That's how much of a team player he was. Jeremy, there's been some criticism of English uh, newspapers and TV. I always make sure I say the same too, same because I get in trouble if I say media, which I used to think was all encompassing, but apparently not. So TV and broadcast, TV and newspapers. Um, some of the headlines as well, now in the hands of God, I, I think that's quite touching, as he always said. Um, but it was scored by the hand of God and, and became a deity in himself. It was almost he would, you know, goes goes home. I thought it was very sweet, um, but some took it to be very offensive. I think Henry Winter has written that you can't you can't be a fan of football without being a fan of Maradona. I think very interesting from Dickinson, who was actually doing a documentary on Maradona, met him recently and talked about how Maradona told him that the drugs never made me better, and he he talked of the tumult. It's it's it really isn't hard for the for English journalists to just fully be in love with this man and the suggestion they're not is is probably wide of the mark is it? I think hey, I think you have to cover the whole story don't you and I don't think there's a footballer that's had quite his impact and I think 85% of it is is about the glory and the um the the beautiful things that he brought us that Tim and Patrick Paddy have explained so so well I, I think I think to ignore the other whatever percent is uh I think that would that that's just part of it and that's why I think he had such a an impact I mean I was 10 I I, I, don't, I obviously can't match any of their stories but it's I think it's quite I was 10 years old in 86 and it's one match I can remember I can remember where I was being around a, mm -hmm. it was around my mate's house and I just for some reason I remember that match and mm -hmm. I remember the picture the still at the end of the coverage coming up of the hand in the air yeah, but I can remember yeah. it vividly and um, and I don't remember many things, you know, but when I was 10 years old, but I can remember that. And the only other 
the other thing was that the 2018 World Cup, he was in the, the, the box above the press box for the Iceland game, Argentina-Iceland. And all the media, it just shows the, the star factor he had. 86 World Cup final. Uh, Germany, and this is how, how Maradona dominated the world of football at that time. Germany's approach to the game was to second their best player, Lothar Mateus, to man mark Maradona, to go in with him at half time and have a pee with him if necessary. It was man marking of the most blatant kind. And this was Germany's best player who was, who was detailed to do this. And what's more, Mateus being Mateus, he did it very well. He restricted Maradona, as far as I can remember, to, well, this is poetic license, three touches, each of which brought a goal as Germany won 3-2. He was fouled for the free kick that led to the first uh, uh, Argentine goal, and he provide, cru provided crucial passes, not least, uh, for one for Valdano and not least for, uh, was it Buruchaga? He, he put Buruchaga through for the final goal. So, he, 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 you know, he could win the, a, a game even when he was marked out of it. That's how much of a team player he was. Jeremy, there's been some criticism of English uh, newspapers and TV. I always make sure I say the same too, same because I get in trouble if I say media, which I used to think was all encompassing, but apparently not. So TV and broadcast, TV and newspapers. Um, some of the headlines as well, now in the hands of God, I, I think that's quite touching, as he always said. Um, but it was scored by the hand of God and, and became a deity in himself. It was almost he would you know, goes, goes home. I thought it was very sweet, um, but some took it to be very offensive. I think Henry Winter has written that you can't, you can't be a fan of football without being a fan of Maradona. I think very interesting from Dickinson, who was actually doing a documentary on Maradona, met him recently and talked about how Maradona told him that the drugs never made me better. And he, he talked of the tumult. It's, it's, it really isn't hard for the, for English journalists to just fully be in love with this man and the suggestion they're not is is probably wide of the mark is it I think hey, I think you have to cover the whole story don't you and I don't think there's a footballer that's had quite his impact and I think 85% of it is is about the glory and the um the the beautiful things that he brought us that Tim and Patrick Paddy have explained so so well I, I think I think to ignore the other whatever percent is uh I think that would that that's just part of it, and that's why I think he had such a an impact. I mean, I was ten. I I, I, don't, I obviously can't match any of their stories, but it's. I think it's quite. I was ten years old in '86, and it's one match I can remember. I can remember where I was being around a, mm -hmm. it was around my mate's house, and I just for some reason I remember that match, and mm -hmm. I remember the picture, the still at the end of the coverage coming up of the hand in the air. Yeah, but I can remember yeah. it vividly. And um, and I don't remember many things, you know. But when I was ten years old, but I can remember that. And the only other, the other thing was that the 2018 World Cup, he was in the 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 box above the press box for the Iceland game, Argentina Iceland, and all the media. It just shows the the star the star factor he had. Everybody was just you couldn't you 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 were your eyes were drawn to this guy a few meters away in the box more than what was going on on the pitch. And, and Messi was on the pitch, you know, and I think that tells you the sort of cut through and impact he had. And obviously he was 
on the front page of every single newspaper in the world, probably. And um, yeah, there, uh, there's a bit of the sort of hand of God stuff. I know it was on the front page of some of the newspapers. I think the majority went for a more classic picture of him looking magnificent as a footballer. But I think that aspect of it is probably why I think with sports people that the sports people that have controversy attached to them as well as the brilliance, somehow they, they have that added impact and cut through. And, and obviously he was one of those figures, but I can't, you know, Muhammad Ali died a few years ago. I can't think of too many sports people who had that, 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 that level of global impact. And I think it is a bit because of the, it is a small percentage because of the, the controversies but clearly, I, I, I do think he's been done justice in the newspapers in England and the media in England. Everyone has a, a Maradona story. Ollie Holt's written about how he, in the mail, about how he was 17 years old and he had a rackety car and he was desperate to get to Old Trafford for the, to live oh, yeah. um, against Manchester United, went on to win it. But he was just the desperation to get into that stadium. I that was, was the night that uh, Brian Robson out maradona Maradona. He did. He Wonderful. He had an impact on everyone and everything he did, didn't he, Tim? I remember being in the stadium when he was he was coach of Argentina in 2009. Um, this was for a World Cup qualifier in Argentina, uh, at home to Brazil, and he's out there for the for the pre-match warm-up. And as 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 we're saying, you know, Messi's on the pitch. <laughs> he's surrounded with great players. And he's, he's just kind of wandering around, talking here, talking there, and playing a little pass here and playing a little pass there. And you can't take your eyes off him. What is the, this, this extraordinary charisma? Um, I suppose it comes from the fact that he's, he's, he's been in the centre of the tumult since he's like been 11 years of age, you know. So he's just so accustomed to being the centre of attention that it just came absolutely natural naturally to him um and i've seen i've been in in with the messy story from the start so i may well have been the first person to write about him in the english language uh but i don't feel i know messi in the way that you kind of knew aspects of maradona you know messi in some ways is a kind of is a kind of maradona of the playstation generation isn't he you know kind of head down to the way you know where whereas uh whereas maradona allowed himself to be known uh, and it was only 60 years, but it was uh, 60 years that have, what a legacy that, they, that, that they've left. Uh, and along with the sadness, we can, we can have a smile at everything that he left us and at all the opportunities he had to forge international friendships. And that's a lovely story that Paddy's told about him going over to shake Lineker's hand. And he, in interviews before that game, he was talking about what a delight it had been to watch the fluidity of Lineker's movements. Mm. He was a football yeah. fan. That's something that I love about him as well, because a lot of great players, they're mm. not big fans. Mm. He was, mm. he absolutely loved football. I loved watching him in, in, in Boca Juniors Stadium, in his beloved Boca Juniors. He had his own little box there and he would he would go and he would take off his shirt and swirl it around his head. <laughs> yes. and I love the fact that he was he was he was a fan. And yeah. I, I think really part of his demise is and when he came back, it looked like we were going to lose him in 2004 and he made a comeback. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was coaching. You know, and, and people would say, why does he need to go to the Middle East or the mm. Mexican second division or Gymnasia, you know, at the wrong end of the Argentine league? And I think really he needed a discipline of, of 
football, of working in football, of, of being out there as a coach, of pinning his team sheet on the wall. And he's probably a victim of the lockdown because Argentine football stopped in the middle of March. It didn't return until the handpicked day, his birthday, the 30th of October, by which time he's clearly in no state to be a coach anymore at that time. He, he was presented uh, uh, to the TV crowd, you know, because no one in the stadium before the game. It was obvious he was, he was in problems, obvious. And I think that the, the tragedy of the last few months of his life was that he, he was locked down in his, you know, in his house with his entourage, too much time and too many demons. Mm. Um, had the lockdown not happened, had the pandemic not struck, I'd imagine that he would still today be coaching Gymnasium. That is simply tragic, isn't it? It's the game that truly was his lifeblood. And I think this is why he's connected with everyone, as you say so beautifully, just the embodiment of the game and, and the yeah. fan of the, the game. And, and perhaps that's why he understood that in his role, it was not only just to play, but every time he came out, he engaged with the fans mm. and made such an impact to all of us that we all so much crave to want to have our moment mm. with him. We, we know how he will be remembered as a as a true great of the game. Jeremy, you've been asked to, uh, among <laughs> you, your colleagues, <laughs> to uh, decide uh, who's the greatest player between Pele, Messi and, and Maradona. That was that was kind of your editor. Hospital ball. Yeah, these greatest things. I think like in, I think impact and cut through. And I do think I think going back on that, I do think you've got to tell all sides of Maradona's life. And I think that's why he had that that cut through. I think impact, perhaps Maradona. I think I find it hard to look past the sort of the consistency of of Messi, um, but. I, I do take on board, you know, just listening to to Paddy and Tim talking about the pitches and what he and how he transformed a team. I, d I do take that into consideration as well. So I'm not, I didn't, I must admit, it wasn't something I felt really strongly in. I plumped for Messi, I think, when we were talking about sort of greatest, because I was sort of thinking of the consistency and the sort of longevity of what he had done. But I wouldn't, I, I don't, in terms, my heart is, is a Maradona heart. I did have a look back properly at Pele's statistics and everything like that. And they are just, jaw, you know, jaw dropping the number of goals and the, and obviously the three World Cups. So I, I couldn't really have a strong argument in any direction because there's always a hole in every career as well. There's always, you know, Messi's not won the World Cup. Maradona's not got the wealth of sort of, um, of club achievements that Messi has got and Pele play you know could talk about where he played his club career you know no no sports career is perfect it's you have to sort of assess it in its own context Tim he's um I was lucky enough to cover the Copa America with you in 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 Argentina and and that's when I understood why Messi may will never overtake Maradona because of the time he went away to Barcelona he'll never be considered as much as one of them as as Maradona, he really came from a really tough upbringing to the heights of the game. Well, you, you may well remember from that competition that the one who was getting all the fuss was Carlos Tevez, who <laughs> in, in, uh, shares some things with Maradona, doesn't share a fraction of the ability. And in fact, the international record of Tevez is not even mediocre. It's downright poor. But he was the one, you know, when the, the team sheet is being led out before, he was the one who was getting who was getting the fans excited. I actually think Maradona's time as coach of Argentina in 2010 
ended up being wrecked by a loyalty to Tevez. He just couldn't leave Tevez out of the side. And Tevez hadn't been in the team. The team were functioning reasonably well. He, 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 because he saw so much of himself in Tevez, in terms of the background and so on, he ended up finding space for Tevez in the team and un, un, unbalanced his, his side. Um, but who is, who's the greatest? I, I always hate it when these debates become adversarial, as they so often do. I think all of these, all of these belong to all of us, and let, let, let's enjoy them. Um, I love Messi, but, ladies and gentlemen, Let's imagine that we're losing 1-0 and there are five minutes to go. Who would you rather have on your team? And I would rather go for either Pele or Maradona over Messi uh, in, in, in that situation. Um, in the end, I've, I've been thinking about this recently, and in the end, I decided Pele. You could put Di Stefano in the mix as well. I don't think that there's, there's been a player in the history mm. of the game who is, who's as influential as Di Stefano. Um, and Di Stefano, what we know now as, as, as the Champions League, when that's launched in 55, that could have been a disaster. It's only 10 years since the end of the war. You know, rationing is still happening. There's lots of enmities and so on. And Di Stefano makes it attractive, makes those people turn out in Glasgow to, 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 to watch him, mm. even makes Leeds United wear white because they wanted, mm. that's what, that's what they, they wanted to be. Um, but if I have to choose, I think I'm going to go for Pele because every, every time... He needed to come big. He did. Now, what Pelé didn't do was accept the challenge of 1974. He didn't do it in the way that Maradona couldn't say no to the challenge right. of 94. He should yeah. never have played. He was, his life was in absolute turmoil. But his country, they nearly qualified. They didn't qualify. They lost 5-0 to Colombia in qualification. They had to go through a playoff against Australia. And they just came back to him on bended, bended knee and say, please, you are the saviour. Please come back. Please come back. And he couldn't resist it. Uh, and he ended up taking a shortcut. There are far worse performance-enhancing offences than ephedrine. But it was a shortcut. And he was, he was, he was found and he was, he was kicked out, out of the tournament. And it, it leaves a stain that wouldn't be there had he been like Pelé. Pelé was thinking about his own prestige. Don't think I can do it in 74 in the way that I did in 70. So let's leave the stage where, when it looks best for me. Maradona is a more collective kind of guy. He just couldn't resist the temptation. Couldn't, couldn't say no. As John Smith may have told you, one of his, his character traits was he just couldn't say no. He found it very yeah. hard to say no. So uh, maybe we'd, we'd look upon him differently had he not accepted that challenge and come come back in in 94 yeah. but if, if you're pinning me against the wall i'm going to say pele because every time he had to come through he came through um i we were meant to spend 15 minutes on maradona no surprise we Sorry. are heading into <laughs> um i will take us into the break and we will put the world of football to rights i'll end it with my experience um of maradona completely self-indulgently, um, arriving in Scotland as Argentina coach into a press conference with Terry Butcher on the Scotland coaching team, refusing to shake Maradona's hand. Maradona in the press conference, refusing to talk about it, saying, I don't even know who Terry Butcher is, ouch. And <laughs> come, on, come on, you're a proud Argentine. You're telling me that if someone has scored a handball against, um, against Argentina in a quarterfinal of the World Cup, um, you wouldn't care, you wouldn't be angry. And he said, uh, I say to the young lady that England won a World Cup with a ball that didn't even cross the line by this much, holding his hand <laughs> a metre apart with that 
twinkle in his eye and he had lasted 20 minutes of a press conference. I was right at the last um, and he just actually had to steal the show right at the last minute. <laughs> um, and that was the glory of him, wasn't he? Just the twinkle in the eye, the magic yeah. entertainer divisive uh but just an absolute beauty join us after the break we'll put the world to rights and be in the know welcoming you back to be in the know we have gone over the life and times of diego maradona pay tribute to one legend the important thing now is we protect the present and we can look back on how we failed our past legends here in england at the forefront of the campaign since 2016 to link dementia with football has been Jeremy Wilson. And Jeremy, I want you to talk through the events of this week, an absolute breakthrough that the head of the PFA, Gordon Taylor, is now stepping down. Um, in his letter though, he has put forward proposals from the PFA for tackling dementia. Have they gone far enough? What do you want to see happen next? Well, it just needs to happen quickly. I mean, the campaign was never about Gordon Taylor per se, but obviously he's been come to be seen as a, um, a sort of, I don't think roadblocks the right word, but uh, but but um, a representation of of a body that's not acted in as quickly as it it could have done. Firstly, in terms of making sure, initiating research to make sure we found out the extent of the problem, and then just tackling the care crisis amongst former players because there are hundreds and hundreds of former footballers sadly with suffering some different type of neurological disease it's happening at a disproportionately young age um, the research has now been done which shows which shows that um, and so i think what now needs to happen is a proper care structure for the former players um, if you look at the amount of money the pfa have got they get 25 million pounds a year something like that from the premier league Gordon Taylor's salary benefits, et cetera, was around 2 million last year, and it has been for the last few years. The benevolent, it's a bit hard to find out how much they're spending on, on players, but the benevolent spending has been somewhere between half a million and a million, um, so less than less than what, what one individual is getting, and that's for all the, the former players. And, you know, when you look at the, the, the amount of money that the PFA um, gets to me. I just don't see how you can defend their their spending. I mean, it's 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 and and that that's obviously the first thing that needs to to change. The first thing is to help the, these former players and families. A lot of them are in utterly desperate situation. It's obviously not just high profile players. It's players all the way down the pyramid. A lot of people who've not made a great deal of money from football. You know, talking about selling homes, parents, children selling homes. Um, you know, as a whole, football needs to step up to, to help former players. And then the other side of it is just to look sensibly, rationally at how we can mitigate um, dangers for the next generation and um, the current generation. Because sadly, as much as nobody wants to believe it and nobody, everybody wants to sort of assume that it was a problem of the old leather ball, Every single scientist that you speak to will tell you that there's nothing to support that idea. Dawn Astle is getting families now coming to her that played in the footballers that played in the 70s and 80s when we moved to a synthetic ball. The speed of the ball travels faster. Some research was done only last week into World Cups. There was more heading 
actually in the World Cups, the more modern World Cups than the, the ones in the 50s and 60s. So sadly, as much as nobody wants to believe that it's the case, there's nothing in the evidence to suggest that this is a, a problem of a particular generation. Let's look at limits on heading in training. Let's, let's sort out the concussion protocols so that it's in line with other sports. I, th I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility to just look at how you could mitigate and change football. There's enough, there's hundreds of rule changes to, to perhaps um, reduce what, what, what is the most damaging types of aerial um, incident in a game. But I think just first of all, do those things, look after the players and do the, the simple things like reduce the amount of heading in training. The Football Association says it wants to conduct more research before reducing or su suggesting a reduction of heading in training at senior level. Does more research need to be done or is it time to stop talking and, and deliberation and research and start taking action? It's, it's both. More, more research, they're, they're right on one level. The, the, the really good research that's been done is that shows that Neurological disease amongst footballers uh, or, or football, former footballers are much more likely to die of things like Alzheimer's, motor neurone disease, Parkinson's than the rest of the population. I think that's kind of beyond dispute now and the football authorities have accepted that. Where they are now is they're saying, well, we don't, that research doesn't show us exactly what caused this higher level of these diseases. So is it the heading? Is it collisions? Is it something else that nobody's thought about? Now, yes, we need to do some more research to try and pinpoint that because then you can obviously target your protocols more effectively to if you, the more you know about what's causing it. But to be in a position where you say do nothing because we don't have that precise research, I think is the big, uh, and, and it's bordering on scandal, I think, because basically to, to get a causal link to something, to absolutely prove it, is very, very difficult because you're talking about something that's happened during a career and then the, the disease might come decades later. To that, so then to be able to say it was due to repetitive heading or it was due to collisions, it's a very difficult thing to do, just as it was with smoking and lung cancer. To get that absolute causal link is, 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 is tricky. But what I would say is there's a whole series of other bits of research that if you put it together and apply a, 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 a tiny bit of common sense you, you're left in a position where I think the the case for some just sensible protective things is unanswerable because we know that footballers are suffering these diseases more than the rest of the population we know that head trauma is linked to dementia in any walk of life if you we know that heading we now know that heading practice causes um, an immediate loss in memory function and it triggers chemicals that get released into the blood that that's been proven by scientists um, what, what they found is that that memory function does go back to normal after a day or two after a short heading practice but that but that something's happening there that's affecting memory so you have all these things that put together I think it's fairly obvious that doing loads and loads of sort of hundreds of headers in a week is, is probably a, a very bad idea for your, your longer term health. And there's more than enough evidence, in my opinion, although you've not got this absolute perfect causal link, which might actually be impossible to do. 
the PFA have in the last week or two said that they would support a reduction, just some limits in heading, which it, it doesn't mean you take it out, but you just say that we just practiced heading one day a week for a certain amount of time or, or two days a week. And you look at the type of heading, so you're not going through those sort of practices where you're, you know, I spoke to Ben Perkis, the chairman of the PFA, um, and Jeff Hurst as well in, the, in recent weeks, and both of them are saying, if, if I have my time again, Ben Perkis said that I had a coach when I was 14 launching the ball from the um, centre circle into the penalty area over and over again to, for me to, to head it, those long range sort of headers. And I think it's just getting together and, and coming up with a set of sensible proposals that, that at this stage, none of the campaign people or the medics are saying take football out of, uh, take heading out of football completely. And match days, it's, it's, it's less, obviously, of a of a occurrence than that repetitive stuff day in, day out. I mean, as I said, I think that FIFA should still be open to looking at how you could maybe nuance the rules. They, they've done that in, in enough other areas, handballs and substitutes and all the rest of it. You'd think they might just have the wit to be able to do it in this area as well. But I think the immediate simple thing is looking at the training and and the concussion protocols at the moment, some of the practices are still, the last World Cup, we saw a player from Morocco, I remember, get concussed, came back on. And then I think he played a game a few days later. And we still see it every season. There's these sort of incidents where someone gets gets whacked and there's this sort of quite quick assessment, unlike in rugby, where they're straight off for 10 minutes. And, and the danger of that is that second impact as well. If something happened, if someone got, got hit again uh, shortly after the first one, it's, I mean, that's potentially catastrophic. And football's way behind, even on this concussion protocol, but also, as I said, the stuff in training. And it's, it's frustrating because it's quite simple, limited things that are being asked for, but it's incredible how resistant to change football is and how quick they will to cite the, the sort of this research cycle of we need we need more evidence and as, as many medics have, I think we're at the point where it's you're, you're not looking for a beyond all possible doubt you're looking for on the balance of probability do we do something sensible that protects players and um, I think if if football don't act on it I do think it will because it's now streaming into the sort of consciousness now of players and managers and the PFA and I think that the Ultimately, I think the football bodies will just find them that they will run into the player power eventually on this because it is beginning. I think players are beginning to understand that there are risks being taken with their health that, that, that don't really need to be taken. And um, I don't think they'll stand for that for long once they realise um, up until now and, and up until the last few years. I don't, I don't think a lot of players quite realised um, what was happening to the sort of players that had gone before them. It's such a big issue. It's such a gear change to then start moving on to the week in action. But I'm going to do that. Let's look to the Champions League and a fixture that really has become tantalising. Manchester United, Paris Saint-Germain. Paris Saint-Germain, Tim, going to a lacklustre two-all draw. Neymar scoring in that, but saying his teammates have become timid. How are you assessing Neymar's growth now? And what... Do you think PSG is shaping up to finally get a title or how far away is he? Well, what concerns me about Neymar is we saw it in the Champions League final um, that from the moment that Bayern Munich took the lead, his game absolutely disappeared. 
every touch was an error at that moment. And you, I think you saw from his reaction after the game that he has, and this is a, this is a, a, a deficit, a problem in his formation. He has not been prepared to lose. And losing is, is one of, the, is one of the, the very possible consequences every, every time a player takes the field. He should have been prepared to lose. He should have been able to, to deal with this in, in, on an emotional level. He's not yet able to deal with this on an emotional level. The fascinating thing with this game is that usually with Paris Saint-Germain, and this is, this is the, the downside of, of his going there, um, the season doesn't actually start until the knockout phases of the Champions League. This year, because they're in a difficult, in a difficult group, it starts already. So uh, that's, that's my focus on the game, to see how Neymar responds to the pressure of the occasion. Paddy, you've worked and written some incredible um, books on, on Manchester United, on, mm. on the great managers. How are you assessing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's reign? And has he got a dressing room of egos that rise to the big occasion because they, this encounter has almost become a prized one for them, but he's not yeah. getting the consistency from them. No, no, they're like two different teams. Even if he picks the same team, two different teams turn up. And, and you, you know, you've put your finger on it with lack of consistency. I think in a way that Manchester United at the moment um, are a really good example of how quickly the game has changed in terms of its character. Uh, I mean, only 10, 15 years ago, it would have been inconceivable that Manchester United or pretty well any elite English or, or indeed any club could send out a team without a leader, without, any, without a player with, with character, without one player with a modicum of character. Um, Bruno Fernandes has a modicum of character, but he stands out in this team in a, you know, in a team of any club 20 years ago, he would have been known for his technique and his passing. He wouldn't have been known as a one who wears the, the shirt with pride, but he is the one in this team who wears, the others turn up when they feel like it, including Rashford, including, uh, uh, well, obviously the, the, the most obvious example of that is Pogba. Um, who should have been thrown out of the club three years ago. Uh, he is symptomatic. And people say it's unfair to blame just Pogba. And it probably is. But he's symptomatic and central to this development, which is new to Manchester United. This is, this is a club which, it seems only 10 minutes ago, uh, was known for players like Ronaldo, Keane, Rooney. You know, Rooney was a leader. Uh, in, in, in a different way from Keane and uh, Brian Robson. You know, <laughs> I know I'm sounding old geezerish, but it is a problem for coaches all over the world that players have got no character, what, what used to be called character. And, and Manchester United are just a really good example of that. Hence, they, until they can somehow buck that trend, they're going to be... Now, Liverpool have, have got character. They're... they're a kind of a throwback, I think. And Manchester City, these two teams that are successful, they work at the game. And uh, Manchester United, I don't know if Solskjaer can elicit that response. And until he, I, I, I don't think, until he gets rid of uh, Pogba and a few others, I don't think he'll even, he'll even know whether he's got a chance. When you look at him on the, on the sidelines, looking at the team, he's as bewildered as we are, trust me. 
you, you look at him and he's empty. His eyes are empty. And uh, I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I just, it's just not, not a Manchester United team. And uh, the only good thing, the only good thing, the only thing that would, that would make you optimistic about it from a, an English football point of view is that, is that Paris Saint-Germain and Neymar, Neymar is a typical example of that. For a great player, where's his leadership? Where's his character? But Tim talked earlier about uh, the difference between Messi and Maradona. And, and it's, it's, it's the same theme. Maradona could lift Argentina, Messi can't. Paddy, you just touched on Liverpool um, there, and I want to go to Jeremy. Um, Jurgen Klopp um, in a tete-a-tete, -tete, as it were, with um, a, a reporter yesterday talking about the 12.30 kickoffs. Des Kelly of BT Sport. Um, how is how do you view it? Is it is it just the competitive nature of Jurgen Klopp, or does he have a point? Because I think he is frustrated if not outraged that the Premier League asked um, a meeting room of, of managers to vote for the five sub rule 15 voted for it yet that hasn't been passed and I think um, there are managers that consider that scandalous is this do you think a player welfare issue or is it a competitive issue I think it's a I think there is a player welfare issue but it's it's wrapped up in the competitive issue because we go back to the previous thing and I didn't hear managers talk too loudly about about that in the last sort of five ten years so the the, the issue and that's a, uh, Jack Charlton said something um in his do the documentary that's coming out he said people in people in football look after you when it's in their interest to look after you and when it's not in their interest to look after you they they won't and I think there's a bit of that with this I think it's in the interests of managers to talk loudly about the the fixture schedule and in in terms of player welfare so um i'm a little bit sort of a, a tiny bit cynical about that but i think there is a wider point on this i do think i do think in this special season where everything was obviously pushed into the summer and then going into this season and what's to come i don't think we should be completely dismissive of that that the points that are being made on that and I do think that football has to give somewhere because I do think that the what's being asked of players is unrealistic overall so I do I do sympathize from that point of view but I think the motivations are obviously much more week-to-week -week performance related for Jurgen Klopp on just the beat on the uh, discussion about broadcasters I think it was it was great to hear the, the, the points made directly to the managers because um, although as I said I think this is a special season and I have more sympathy with the the arguments that are being made by managers it's something that obviously we've gone to press conferences we've heard it since we can, any of us can remember talking about kickoff times and Champions League and normally it's Mourinho in sort of springtime or you know when, or, or when he was competing more for the Champions League about the and I, and it and always that point that point came back. It's down to the if 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 these managers are serious about this issue, as Des Kelly put it to Jurgen Klopp, they need to speak to their chief executives and chairman and owners, not not um, the Premier League, because it's it's sold as a package, and that's that's the deal you do. And if you don't it, you don't sell a deal that you're not happy to then go through with. So 
uh, it was great to hear that point put so directly back to to a manager because um, it doesn't make sense to blame the media or the broadcasters for um, putting into practice something that they've paid for. Having said that, as I say, I do have a little bit more sympathy this season for the wider point about player welfare and player what's being asked of players at the moment. Although, as I said, I think it's it's more because managers are in the immediate having problems than you know with some deep concern about sort of what, how their players will react to this in 10 years time or three years time or one year's time i think it's more mm. week to week their their motivation but that that wider point is does need to be looked at seriously it's in their hands though isn't it if you look at uh, sorry to interrupt gary but the if you look at um cup matches you uh, and one team makes seven changes you'll always find that the other team makes either six or eight changes the managers collude on, on squad rotation, that much is obvious. Um, whether they do it formally or, or, or naturally, they can collude on player welfare. There's absolutely nothing. They, there's not a single club in the Premier League that doesn't have at least 22 players in its squad. Therefore, you can change. No player has to play more than one game a week. And that is, that is a fact. Um, if managers are concerned about player welfare, rotate your squads. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of evidence that they're already doing it, but it's obvious that welfare isn't the number one priority in, in their considerations um, by the fact that they don't do it more often. Paddy, one yeah. manager who is, um, if you look at Jonathan Wilson's uh, article on Sunday, really making it work for him this lockdown, this time, picking yeah. the pocket of teams, Jose Mourinho, he says he's the happy one. My question to Opta and their statisticians, has a manager ever self-combusted? Um, because with two London derbies in a week, it could just happen. Um, <laughs> um, Lampard and then Arteta, um, yeah. what that means to this club, knowing what Daniel Levy, how he holds beating Arsenal as the absolute all bar a trophy, probably up and above and beyond a trophy. But how how surprised are you at how he's changed in a sense himself and evolved, and how he's making it work with this Tottenham side? You do you do mean Mourinho, not Levy? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, I, I, I'm to be quite honest. I'm thrilled. I, I mean. Personally, we, we spoke earlier about Maradona. I'm not comparing Mourinho with Maradona, but he is comparable in, in the sense that he's one of these people, he's such a character that you want him to do well because he in, enhances the landscape. You don't want to be talking about, is Mourinho finished? Is he a dinosaur? Is he, is he out of date as, as we were? You know, if we'd been talking, making this conversation, the question probably would have been, is, is Mourinho shot? Is he yesterday's man? I think it's wonderful that there are signs of a genuine revival here. And uh, he, his mischief is, is good now. Um, when he said uh, a few days ago that it's nice being, he didn't actually use the word small club, but it's nice not not uh, being at the pre uh, uh, under pressure as a big spender. Uh, <laughs> I mean, talk about uh, playing between the lines. I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's great to have him to have him uh, back in uh, in a club which seems to suit him. And uh, I think down the line, 
uh, regardless of recent results, I, I, I've got genuine hope that, uh, uh, that he's going to be a bit special again. I want to draw you on something else as well. When we were talking about Maradona earlier, and you were like, you know, the the tackles that he faced, um, and then mm. not and every every player is a saint and a sinner. A lot written about that in the newspapers this week. Harry Kane and drawing fouls. He's even talked about it as part of his job now in mm. press conferences. Mm. Well, I think I think we should be more, um, you know, Tim will know what I'm saying. We're, 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 I think we should be more Latin about it. Um, at least be consistent. Uh, I mean, the, the recent, um, uh, uh, one of Harry Kane's less elegant attempts to draw a foul in the last match, but one, um, uh, was a booking. I mean, it was a yellow card. It was, it, it was such a, a, a piece of, of cheating. But I, I don't think you can, you can, you can criticise Kane in particular because buying fouls now has become such a part of the game in England uh, as, as well as elsewhere. But in, in a way, I would say, I've watched a lot of English and Scottish football lately um, at various levels, including the dismal level that my beloved Dundee play at. And it, buying fouls is so prevalent now. Um, and it, it, and it is, it, it's quite, it's quite an unpleasant side of the game. And, but Harry Kane is quite, would be unprofessional if he weren't to address uh, that, that side of it. I personally think uh, that the answer in all this lies in, in, in legislation and in referees. If, uh, if referees seriously thought uh, about, uh, about uh, buying fouls with a little less facility, I think the game would be greatly improved. You know, uh, more sort of play on, play on. Um, and the, the, the trouble is that if they discern fouling, the, 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 one of the worst laws that ever was brought in was an automatic yellow card for a, for, for a dive. Because that means that the, the numerous dives can't be punished because otherwise somebody, somebody will, will get sent off for two nothings, you know? So, that referees need to look up for a start I would abolish the yellow card for the dive and that way you'll get a lot more dives punished now Tim Vickery I want to come back to South America for something I know is going to be an absolute thriller might not be on everyone's radar early this week but Frank Lampard having taken on Jose Mourinho now faces Marcelo Bielsa and the return of Spygate and this is going to be hot hot, hot. What was your perception of it all from where you are and a man you've studied so in-depth in Bielsa? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm loving so much the capacity to share Bielsa's brand of, uh, of eccentricity with you because it was my own little secret for, for, for a while. Um, the, the, the whole issue... Uh, I, I love the land of my birth, and there's many things that, I, that uh, I, I identify with, but there are other things that I don't identify with. And sometimes I think that if kind of moralizing hypocrisy was, a, was an Olympic sport, then no, we'd, 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 uh, we'd win gold every four years. It wouldn't be worth the other nations turning up. No, no. <laughs> It's so tiresome, isn't it? It's so, so tiresome. This, this, uh, this uh, kind of holier than thou thing that uh, uh, that so many of my compatriots seem able to to turn on. 
um, so so easily. No, it's a, it's it's a it's a football conflict. It, it's the idea of Bielsa uh, against Lampard now with many more resources than he had when he was coach of of, of Derby County. So um, let let's see how Bielsa does. He doesn't have a plan B. Um, Bielsa. I think you have to, in order to understand him, first, you've got to understand that he's uh, from an illustrious family of lawyers. So he, he's always acted, not in a snobbish way, but he's always acted in a, in a kind of like, I don't need, I'm above this. Football, especially here in South America, it, it's survival. It's not for Bielsa. He doesn't need it. Doesn't need it. So he's a little bit above it, just in his, in his own little world. And also, there's, there's a part of his development which I think is often overlooked. When uh, in the, the early 90s, he went to Mexico and he spent a few years in Mexico. And it got him away from that win-at-all-costs Argentine mentality. He loved the mentality in Mexico. Uh, and uh, it, it's a little bit like someone who goes away to college. And when they come back after college, they're different. And they're more themselves. And I think that that's what happened to Bielsa in, 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 in Mexico. He's, oh, yes. He became more himself. So he's going to do it that way. And that's his way. And when he was coach of, of, of Chile, you know, because his team, they, they leave themselves so open to the counterattack. Every time they played against Brazil, who were the counterattack specialists at the time, they lost exactly the same way. No, because mm. this was Bielsa. That's the way I'm doing it. That's the way I feel football. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that's what it's going to be. Uh, and I, I love that, that, that strength of character. I love that. Mm. Uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by his, his, uh, his love for, for self-flagellation as well. I mean, <laughs> he, he, he loves talking about the fact that he's hardly won anything. Yeah. He loves, uh, he, he kind of loved, I think, being caught on this Spygate thing and then having and then turning it in to a defense of his method of working in which this uh, uh, spying on the opposition was a tiny tiny part of a of a of a gloriously obsessive regime of scouting uh, of, of scouting the opponents the irony being at the end of the day at the end of after scouting his opponents and after watching 500 videos of every opponent he's going to play he always plays the same way so um, <laughs> it's, it's, what, yeah. a, what a wonderful character and uh, the, all, the game's better for him they all do it you're quite right about the uh, about the hypocrisy thing they all do it and, and what's more it's a british thing craig brown we spoke earlier about when he was assistant manager of Scotland, I think under Ferguson in Mexico in 1986. And um, they were, they tried to spy on, I can't remember, it might have been, let's say it was the Euro, before the Uruguay match. And they tried to, to spy on Uruguay's training and they, they couldn't, uh, they were stopped. Uh, they were told this is a private training session. So, one of the coaching staff went outside and, and saw a hot dog man, a man with a hot dog stand, a you know, mobile trolley. So he said, uh, he offered him a, you know, a huge sum of money and he swapped clothes with him. And he said, can I borrow your hot dog stand for a minute? He took it into the ground saying, I've, I've got to do a safety check you know, for, for, for the match tomorrow. And uh, went in and spied on the whole session. Came out again, gave the bloke the money, 
and swap clothes back. So it's, and that's, that's the British, and that's what, how many, 35 years ago. So it's obviously, I'm sure Frank uh, has got hold of it now. Uh, the thing I always could never understand during my career as a being, being naive uh, as a reporter was how the teams always, you know, say if Bobby Robson was the England manager, he would always know how the other team would line up. And that can't have been guesswork because obviously they changed the so it's it's it, it it was such a load of nonsense that he would have been not doing his job properly if he hadn't at least made an attempt um to scout the opposition uh, it, it's I, I i thought it was such a storm in a teacup that but you know you get used to them Andy Dunn, Andy Dunn calling a um, Bielsa and Leeds United box office that he said um, really, really just absolutely stunned He's by quite him. right. He's quite right. I think I, I watched um, the weekend game against uh, Everton. Uh, there was only one goal in it, but my God, there was plenty of football. And the, the, the development of uh, players under Bielsa has been incredible. I mean, we where everybody uh, talks about Phillips, you know, Calvin Phillips, and it's wonderful to watch him. He is such a joy to watch. Uh, you, we talked about leadership early. He's got it. He's got it. He's got old fashioned. He could be playing 40 years ago, Calvin, Calvin Phillips. I absolutely love him. But the fullbacks as well, you know, both, both of the fullbacks, are, they all look as if they're on happy bills. They're just loving the football so much. We know he's a man that drives his players forward, Tim, and I'm, there are so many disciples, of course, Pep Guardiola, who's had his impact on Arteta and, and Pochettino as well in the dressing room of PSG, passed on the influence of Bielsa to him. Is Arteta coming on your radar in South America because of the work he's doing with Martinelli? Are you seeing the breakthrough there post-Wenger as, as well, an emergence of players that seem to be pushing through walls from him? Well, I have to declare an interest as a Tottenham fan. I hope not. So, uh, on, on, on that note, I'll pass it. Pass that. The ball to <laughs> Arteta. Ah, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, but obviously, it, he's uh, he's picked up an awful lot. I mean, I've got a theory about this that the footballers who would have been great if they just had a couple of yards of pace, uh, even greater than they were, uh, usually make the best. Coaches, mm. uh, Guardiola is a, a perfect example mm. of that. Uh, Guardiola would have, was a nearly a world-class player, but with a little more pace, he would have been a world-class player. Arteta, would, with a, a little bit of pace, would have certainly had better clubs than Rangers and Everton. Uh, great clubs, though they are. So uh, that it, it's quite nice to have my theory um, <laughs> unusually vindicated, but. Uh, yeah, I think I think so far he's just been just as Guardiola transported Barcelona to East Manchester, Arteta has transported Manchester City. You know, a lot of elements of the discipline, the intensity of Manchester City uh, to the part of North London that Tim's not so keen on. And for you, Paddy, who's a player that you've been so impressed with? Your unsung hero. Uh, in the in the week in which we celebrating for sad reasons Diego Maradona and and we're talking and therefore we're talking of the joy of the game yes Jack Grealish isn't exactly unsung 
But I have to say that he has excited me with his performances this season in the way that Bergkamp and Zola used to. You know, he, he has just been so... He so embodies the joy of football, the cheekiness and the joy of it. Um, that I would say he's my undersung hero of this season. And I, 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 if I was to vote for Footballer of the Year right now, um, with my Football Writers Association membership card being flourished, I would vote for Jack Grealish because of the joy he's brought to the Premier League this season. Tim, the world over as you cover it, who is a player exciting you right now? Yeah, he's one to look out for. He's a young fellow from Ecuador called uh, Moses Caicedo. He's only just turned 18 uh, or 19. Let's, let's do the maths. Yeah, November 2001. So that's 19. Yeah, he's just turned 19. Um, first player born in the 21st century to score a goal in South America's World Cup qualifiers. Uh, and he's a central midfielder um, who's uh, who's got leadership about him, who's got box-to-box -box about him, who's got quality about him. He's from a little club called Independiente del Valle in Ecuador, a small club from the outskirts of Quito. Uh, and uh, over the last few years, they've specialised in producing youth talent, and they are doing it fantastically well. I've never seen anything like it. They're a club with a support base, a tiny little support base, and they're competing for big honours in South American club football, despite the fact that every year they sell all of their players and just bring in the, bring in the next lot. And this fellow, Moses Caicedo, he's not going to be there for very long. He's, he's, he's going to be at a big European club soon. Uh, and he's, he's, he's a box-to-box -box midfielder with, uh, with fantastic potential. You've heard it here first. We will wait for all the speculation in the transfer windows around his name then in the coming weeks. Who... For you, Tim, on, on, on this sad week, um, Jeremy's had to leave us because he's he's got his son to take out and play football with. Important stuff. Got his priorities right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, celebrate Maradona, then go play the game with your son. I think that's very poetic. Mm -hmm. um, Paddy, what, what's your lasting take on the week or perhaps your fondest memory of the great, the great Maradona? Well, my fondest memory to go back to Hampden Park on a sunny, a rare sunny Scottish afternoon when he played his first game in the UK uh, back in, or whenever it was, 79. Um, uh, my fond, fondest memory of Maradona, I, I love the, the personality of the guy, but football, 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 and the way he scored his goal against Scotland, the one which turned the crowd against Scotland and in favour of him. Um, he fainted to shoot. He could have tapped it in, but he fainted to shoot. Scotland's goalkeeper, poor chap, was a George Wood, of famous, well thought of at Bristol Palace. Uh, George Wood was in goal that day, must have wished he'd been dropped, because Maradona sent him one way, to one post, then sent him to the other post, and he was still snogging inadvertently snogging the other post when Maradona rolled it back the way it had come from. <laughs> I mean, it brought the house down. And I'll never forget that goal. And, and uh, uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's a very fond, very fond memory, that one. I don't think we can even like you because we're just dripping with jealousy. <laughs> um, Tim, Tim, for you, it's been an incredibly hard week, I'm sure, for you. But for you, what's, what's the overriding memory either of Maradona or of, or of this week of tomorrow? Uh, that second goal against England, he received the ball in his own half from the midfielder, Enrique, 
And I love the fact that in addressing him afterwards, Enrique said, well, I put it on a plate for you. You didn't have much to do, did you? I, I love <laughs> did, he get an, did he get an assist? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's probably the radio commentary on the BBC from Brian Butler, which you know, the, the radio commentators, they've got to do it all in real time. There's no pictures. They have got to tell you what is happening. And that fantastic piece of football from Maradona produces an incredible piece of radio commentary from Brian Butler with he's describing what's happened and he even throws in wriggling like a little eel, squat yeah, little yeah. man. It's perfectly descriptive. <laughs> um, Wonderful. Uh, uh, goes around Butcher, leaves him for dead. Goes around Fennec, leaves him for dead. So he's describing what's doing and he, what he's doing and he's building up momentum as he goes, and then as Maradona slips it in, and that's why Diego Maradona is the greatest player in the world. He buried <laughs> the defence. And I love the fact that a great piece of football produced a great piece of art on the field, produced a great piece of minor art, which is radio football commentary. What an absolute pleasure. You truly are in the know. We have been transported across the world, back in time. Thank you so much, Paddy. Thank, thank you. you so much, Tim. Um, in thank absence, you. thank you, Jeremy. You are in the know. Thank you so much for joining us on, a, on the week we said goodbye to Diego Maradona.